Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The results are in. And Biden has screwed the pooch. Republicans, Democrats, all taking a look at his speech about voting rights and saying, holy hell, what's wrong with you? Joe Biden is an angry old man. That's who he is. We have said from the beginning, he is not a moderate. He has never been a moderate. And the people who push him as a moderate, well, that's because they are used to people being far more open with their communist leanings. Uh, some, I'm sorry, they call them progressive leanings. But, you know, it's all the same. Biden has shown with his policies, adopting all of their policies, that moderate is not his middle name. Nor does he believe in healing a nation. He is not a unifier. Stephen Hayes is a never-Trumper. Joe Biden's speech yesterday was filled with misleading comparisons. This is the speech he gave in Georgia. It was two days ago, actually. Cheap demagoguery and false claims. The worst of his presidency from the guy who claimed unifying the country is in his, quote, whole soul. He doesn't believe in unifying the country. He believes in abusing you until you agree with him. He doesn't believe in decency or morality. He doesn't believe in the humanity of the other guy. He has been a partisan his whole life when he wasn't supporting racists. But don't just say I'm saying that. It was Kamala Harris who was calling him a segregationist before it was cool. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It is fantastic to be with you. 833, got Tony, 833-468-8669. And let us be clear about what we're talking about with voting rights. He doesn't think you should have to provide a voter ID. No ID to vote. He thinks providing an ID is racist. Can you imagine being so ignorant? This whole nonsense about you can't hand out food or water. There are people who will tell you that it means that people from the, from the candidate's crew can't hand out food and water. But if you're not smart enough to bring a bottle of water with you to vote, well then, okay. I, that's your problem. That's your problem. I don't want to hear it. If you're online at the bank and you don't bring a bottle of water, it's on you. If you're online in an amusement park and you don't bring a bottle of water, it's on you. If you're online for a concert, you don't bring a bottle of water, it's on you. Why is this in any way some bigoted thing? Of course it's not. Republicans, Democrats, never-Trumpers. Then again, it's the never-Trumpers who are responsible for a guy like Joe Biden getting elected to begin with. So maybe I shouldn't give them all the love. All for this voting rights legislation that will make it easier to cheat. Because it will. The conversation is not, my gosh, look at all the voter fraud. The conversation is, why would you engage policies that would encourage voter fraud? 
create the, the larger opportunities. I should say encourage. Create the larger opportunities for voter fraud, which mail-in balloting does. Not just the idea of somebody mailing in their ballot, but that a, ma- a ballot is mailed to them whether they ask for it or not. That creates opportunity. Especially when we know that the voting rolls are sometimes filled with people who don't live there anymore or who aren't alive anymore. We know this for fact. So why would you be in favor of that? And we've talked with John Lott, uh, writing the piece over at Town Hall, uh, that you've seen nations get away from this because they have seen the problems that it causes. The Democratic Party... They want to take away your right as a citizen in a state to choose how you engage. Voting is a state's rights issue. They want to make it a federal issue. And they want to make it a federal issue because they don't like that some states where Republicans have won have taken the idea of states' rights to heart. They object to the idea that the state could do something they don't like because they want the power. And it's not because I say so. It's because Chuck Schumer says so. They're telling people that in Georgia, where there are much longer lines in African-American precincts than in white precincts, that it's a crime to serve water uh, or a sandwich, um, greatly restricting or eliminating early voting. Ah, no one is greatly restricting anything. Everybody knows that Schumer is not telling the truth there. But Schumer's great line was the one where he said, oh, yeah, cinema uh, and mansion are hearing it from, from Democrats. If, if this passes, well, then uh, we won't get reelected. So that's what it's about. It's about whether or not you're reelected. We should change the totality of voting laws just to protect the Democratic Party. I mean, that's what he believes. That's what Chuck Schumer believes. That's who he is. That's what the Democratic Party has put forth and put on the table. And the, other, the only way they can get this done is if not only do they scream it, they scream that the other side are a bunch of bigots for not doing it. And that's where the Joe Biden speech comes in. This bigoted, hateful, evil, disgusting, disgusting statement that has been panned everywhere by everyone. And rightfully, rightfully so. But they now have a new problem. They've got a one-two punch of problems right here. They have the one-two problem of how unpopular Biden is and how unpopular his policies are. Let me give you the one-two punch. Quinnipiac did some polling. The new Quinnipiac polling has Biden's approval rating down to 33%. 53% disapprove. A three-point decline from the same poll taken in November. The new poll was January 7th to January 10th. He's going down. Economy, 34% approve, 57% disapprove. Foreign policy, 35% approve, 54% disapprove. Coronavirus, 
39% approve of his handling, 55% disapprove. This Quinnipiac poll is so absolutely brutalizing, it could be characterized as elder abuse. That's what this poll does to Joe Biden. It's just destructive. Now, you know me. I don't believe any one poll. But we've seen enough that we know that Biden's positions, the progressive positions, are wholly unpopular. We've seen it time and again and again and again. His positions are unpopular with the American people. They don't want this nonsense. How do I know this? Look at all the things that have failed. They failed on getting past uh, the $1.75 trillion social spending bill. They have failed now on getting this voting rights bill passed. To get this passed, they've talked about doing away with the filibuster, of course. The filibuster is the most awful, evil, terrible thing in the history of mankind. Nothing is worse than the filibuster. My gosh, the filibuster is racist, too. Except, of course, for all the times people like Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden were out there trying to protect the filibuster like they did in years past. A lot of people going back to 2005 and watching then Joe Biden and then Chuck Schumer protect the filibuster with everything in them. How important the filibuster is. How it would be nothing more than a banana republic without the filibuster. The bottom line is very simple. The ideologues in the Senate want to turn what the founding fathers called the cooling saucer of democracy into the rubber stamp of dictatorship. We will not let them. They want, because they can't get their way on every judge, to change the rules in midstream, to wash away 200 years of history. They want to make this country into a banana republic, where if you don't get your way, you change the rules. Are we going to let them? No! It'll be a doomsday for democracy if we do. That was Chuck Schumer less than 20 years ago. That speech... That is the speech that Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, read on the House floor. Sorry, read on the Senate floor. Yesterday, he read that speech. And he's like, hey, those aren't my words. Those are the words of Chuck Schumer. Oh, it was brutal. Brutal. Because they still work. The flip-flop and the nonsense, man, it's not being taken well. But the dagger for them on voting rights comes from Senator Kirsten Sinema, who today in the Senate actually gave a very moving and impassioned speech about where our political parties are today and was quite clear about her take on the filibuster. I strongly support those efforts to contest these laws in court and to invest significant resources into these states to better organize and stop efforts to restrict access at the ballot box. 
and I strongly support and will continue to vote for legislative responses to address these state laws, including the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that the Senate is currently considering. I support these bills because they strengthen Americans' access to the ballot box, and they better ensure that Americans' votes are counted fairly. It is through elections that Americans make their voices heard, select their representatives, and guide the future of our countries and our community. These bills help treat the symptoms of the disease, but they do not fully address the disease itself. And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. The debate over the Senate 60 vote threshold shines a light on our broader challenges. There's no need for me to restate my long-standing support for the 60 vote threshold to pass legislation. And there's no need for me to restate its role protecting our country from wild reversals in federal policy. It is a view I've held during my years serving in both the U.S. House and the Senate. And it is the view I continue to hold. And that view is going to keep the filibuster intact. That's exactly the point. Now, I believe she's wrong about the John Lewis uh, Act and the Voting Rights Act. I know that I'm not dealing with a conservative here. But to oppose, to really and truly oppose the filibuster is only to be radically partisan and nothing else. And what she is making the argument of is maybe we shouldn't be radically partisan as she continued her conversation. But a discussion of rules falls short of what is required. American politics are cyclical. And the granting of power in Washington, D.C. is exchanged regularly by the voters from one party to another. This shift of power back and forth means the Senate 60s vote threshold has proved maddening to members of both political parties in recent years. Viewed either as a weapon of obstruction or a safety net to save the country from radical policies, depending on whether you serve in the majority or the minority. But what is the legislative filibuster other than a tool that requires new federal policy to be broadly supported by senators representing a broader cross-section of Americans, a guardrail, inevitably viewed as an obstacle by whoever holds the Senate majority, but which in reality ensures that millions of Americans represented by the minority party have a voice in the process. Demands to eliminate this threshold from whichever party holds the fleeting majority amount to a group of people separated on two sides of a canyon shouting that solution to their colleagues. And that makes the rift both wider and deeper. Consider this. In recent years, nearly every party line response to the problems we face in this body, every partisan action taken to protect a cherished value, has led us to more division, not less. The impact is clear for all to see. 
the steady escalation of tit-for-tat in which each new majority weakens the guardrails of the Senate and excludes input from the other party, furthering resentment and anger amongst this body. And our- I mean, she's, she's hit on something that I, I think we agree on. But for, for Republicans, the, the argument is they spent so many years taking the hit and finally they're fighting back and they're, they're not going to stop. They're, just not, they're not going to roll. They can't. Maybe this fight has to take place. But it's, I, I appreciate her recognizing these issues and, and saying so. And I appreciate her supporting the filibuster as she should. What should be noted is, is that it's not uh, Kirsten Cinema. Who's keeping the Democrats from doing what they want? It's not Joe Manchin. 52 senators want to keep the filibuster. They are the majority. The minority, the 48, want to do away with the filibuster so they can get their ideology passed and not care about the rules. The minority is in the minority. And that's good for all of us. I'm Tony Katz. I cannot describe to you the level of breakdown the left is having over Senator Sinema's speech, which, you know, we listened to part of it and we're like, look, we do, we could say we disagree with her on, on this idea, this voting rights legislation that she favors, but she's right that you shouldn't get rid of the filibuster. Democrats, progressives are up in arms. Lawrence O'Donnell over there at uh, MSNBC Cinema delivers the Senate's stupidest speech by a Democrat in an edge of tears voice to give childish words a melodramatic effect. Maybe, maybe it was meant to give a melodramatic effect. I wouldn't be able to know. I got to take her at her word. But it wasn't stupid. She told you where she's at. She thinks there's too much of a divide. There's too much rancor. And you can't get rid of the rules. It doesn't help things. It makes things worse. But Jennifer Rubin over there at uh, at Washington Post claims to be a conservative. Cinema is effectively asking the authors of Jim Crow and vote rigging to give their permission for her to stop it. This is worse than incoherent or cowardice. It's a moral disgrace. Ask the segregationists for permission to vote for civil rights. She's calling members of Congress who disagree with her as segregationists. Proving the point about the rancor. Segregationists. I disagree with you on this voting rights legislation. So now I'm Jim Crow. That is evil. Meanwhile, the lawsuits are flying from legal insurrection. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, is here to discuss the latest and how it affects you, me, and we. I'm Tony Katz. So while... Washington, D.C. burns. The insanity continues to be more and more insane. There are things that happen to, you know, close to our lives that we ignore. It's one of the reasons I I brought up so much of the inflation conversation, because that's our life. What's happening there matters greatly. Certainly what's happening with the filibuster conversation matters greatly to us. It is our voting rights, but we think of it as something happening in D.C., other things are happening, and sometimes you get a victory. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. There was a lawsuit launched against a public school scholarship program in Asheville, North Carolina, 
that discriminated on the basis of race. The victory, hard fought, won by legal insurrection. We have William Jacobson with us all the time. He actually joins us right now. Cornell Law Professor William Jacobson, the mind behind legalinsurrection.com. This is a very... This is a very peculiar lawsuit because the issue at play here doesn't involve a college, which I I think I tweeted out inadvertently, but rather involves public schools and scholarships based on race. Talk to me about this. Yes, well, Asheville, North Carolina, was the beneficiary of a lawsuit settlement unrelated to anything we're talking about. And so they had money available and they decided to create a fund to be uh, administered by a separate foundation, but connected to the school system. And the catch was the funds for scholarships to go on to college were only available to black students and to non-white so-called BIPOC um, teachers. So there were two scholarships, one for students, one for teachers to get extra education. Uh, But they were racially classified, only certain races um, could uh, apply and could benefit. And apparently nobody down in Asheville thought that was odd when they did it. I think most people would say, wait a second, you can't do that. So uh, together with Judicial Watch, and I want to give them a big shout out because they, you know, in many ways took the lead on this, but we worked with them, uh, sued uh, city of Asheville and school district and all the people involved saying you can't do this. That's, you know, violates equal protection, violates a whole bunch of anti-discrimination laws, and the case settled. And they have now agreed to remove that language from the uh, agreement that established the foundation to administer these scholarships. So, so now let me, no let me take you in a, in a bit of a, of, a, of a direction here and, and add something in that's been going on in New York, it's been going on in Utah, in Minnesota, which is where you're seeing these states and these cities utilize race to determine COVID treatment eligibility. They, they, they're making the claims out loud that because of past discrimination, we are treating this group of people that look like this, that have this characteristic first, regardless of where you are in terms of your health regarding COVID. This seems to fall into that conversation that we don't have a logical look because clearly, as you asked the question, how could anybody think this was okay? Yet we see in lots of places people think this is okay. How much of this in the legal world are you seeing and will this victory you've had in the Asheville schools, do you think this will resonate out? Well, I I don't know if it will resonate out, but I think we're seeing a lot of this. I mean, this is the logical conclusion of loosely called critical race theory, whatever you want to call it. It morphs into very different forms. But this intense focus on race and this intense focus on so-called equity, that everything's got to be equal outcome. And if there's not an equal outcome, it must be because of racism. When when This whole mentality we're seeing now permeating things we never thought, like school scholarships, like medical care. Who would have ever thought... And I think there will be lawsuits about that, um, that the state of New York Department of Health would issue guidance that uh, prefers non-whites over whites for obtaining um, for rationing, uh, you know, therapeutics for COVID, uh, which are in short supply. So they've got it. And and being non-white gives you a leg up. It doesn't guarantee you'll get it, 
but it gives you a leg up versus white people, which is completely insane, completely racist. And I think there will be lawsuits about it. And so uh, but this is what we're seeing. We're seeing it everywhere. And it's the logical conclusion of what we've seen start on the campuses and like most of this stuff, then emanate out into society. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. This brings us into uh, the conversation of critical race theory. And, of course, you run uh, CriticalRace.org. It's a project of the Legal Insurrection Foundation where you're taking a look at what states are doing regarding critical race theory, universities, and, of course, into the the actual high school uh, level. And you did an analysis Nearly half of the 500 or more higher education schools in the criticalrace.org database mandate race-based training and study, yet when you talk to a lot of schools, we don't mandate critical race theory, we don't teach critical race theory, what are you talking about? How do you determine whether or not these schools are mandating uh, these things? Is it because they say it or because you have seen it? And what happens when it's not mandated? How do you go about finding out? Right. So criticalrace.org has a map, a database. We have now 520 colleges and universities in that. And we have a research team that for a year, more than a year actually, has been going out and has been documenting what's going on. It's a drop-down menu. You can find your state. You can find your school. If it's in our database, not all are, but 500 are. And we document absolute everything. Um, We have links. We have archive links. Everything we do is linked to the source. Everything we do, it is simply a compilation of what the universities and the colleges are telling themselves and telling the public. There's no secret information there. There's no leaked information. Maybe we'll do that in the future, but as of now, it's all publicly available information because the colleges and universities like to put this stuff on their websites. They like to brag about it. They like to put it in alumni magazines. So so everything is public, and here it is. And you go to your school, and we have a list. Here's what they're doing. Here's this program. Here's the link to it. And of course, like I said, we archive everything and uh, screenshot everything in case it disappears. And it could disappear just because people change their websites for a variety of reasons. So it's all it's just a list. We document everything. Now, we make very clear on the website that not every school in the database mandates some sort of critical race training. And we're also very clear that most of the time they will not call it critical race theory. They run from that term. So they'll call it equity or they'll call it anti-racism or they'll call it diversity, equity and inclusion. And we tell you that. So we tell you exactly what the school does and people can make their own decision. So that's why we were very careful when we put out this data about half the schools that it's race based training. You can look at what they're doing and you can decide whether this program is something you're comfortable with. Whether we characterize it as critical race theory or not actually isn't the important thing. It's what they're doing, and we give people all those. But roughly half the schools in our database mandate some form of race-based training and study by students, and about a third mandate it for faculty and staff. So... The, the, the schools, the, the, the parents who are fighting in, in, in these school districts, and we see a lot of this, 
For example, in my beloved Indiana, you've got a state senator with something called Senate Bill 167. You got to be able to show what the curriculum is and you, you can't uh, be, be teaching this or that. And then other people say, well, that means we won't be able to teach history. And I oppose not teaching history, but I also oppose teaching uh, the idea of an oppressed oppressor relationship. And if you teach that a nation is racist, well, that by definition, somebody is the racist and somebody is put upon. It is the oppressed oppressor relationship, but they base it on the idea of, oh, we don't mandate this, but we see it in, in, in the schools. So you see legislation that gets put out there to try and fight this, and then the response is, oh, you're just trying to create something that isn't there. Oh, you're just fighting the culture wars, as if somehow that's a, a real argument. Oh, you're trying to, you're, you've got a solution in search of a problem. But we see this, the nation over. Have you seen some of these pieces of legislation, whether it's Indiana or other places, and are they reacting too quickly, or is there a way that you have seen that maybe this is a solid approach based on the, the, the data? Well, I think that uh, the reason people are turning to legislation is that the public school systems in most places have been completely taken over by an ideology pushing this sort of racialized, I call it racialized education. Everything revolves around race. History revolves around race. Um, Social studies revolves around race. Math revolves around race. Physics revolves around race. So I like to refer to it as the racialization of education. So, but, but because the school boards are often very hostile because the, People in the educational bureaucracy grew out of education schools that teach the social justice, racial justice, um, and then it kind of morphs into activism. Because the public schools have become so activist in their treatment of children, parents don't feel they can make any headway trying to deal with it that way. So they go to state legislators who are more receptive. The problem with state legislation is how do you define what can take place and what can't take place? And that's the problem because you use a term like critical race theory and they'll say, oh, that's not being taught in kindergarten. And to a limited extent, they're true. They're right. You'll never see a kindergarten book that says critical race theory. What you will see is kindergarten books like, you know, anti-racist baby. You'll see kindergarten books um, turning kids into activists, kindergarten Books focus completely on oppressor, oppressed narratives. And so people get frustrated. Legislation is worth trying, but you have to be very careful. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us. I've got more to get to, including the numbers, people. Data don't lie. I'm Tony Katz. So what do the numbers say? You know, in, in, in the COVID conversations, which I, I won't get involved in the crazy anymore. I, I've covered all I'm going to cover. But data does matter. Data matters quite a bit. So there was this, this tweet from Rochelle Walensky, CDC director. And, and don't get me wrong, the lack of faith in uh, the, the institutions, well, that's, that's real. And I've discussed it. I'll discuss it more. I'll, I'll get more into it. It, it. it is a thing. But this data was important because they did a study of the severity of those infected with Omicron compared to Delta. Delta's still out there. Delta exists. New Jersey, for example, the dominant strain is Delta. 
The vaccine seems to work on Delta. It doesn't seem to work on Omicron, if only because the vaccine was not built for Omicron, which is an honest conversation which gets into a free speech conversation. Because for some people, saying that is, oh, that's misinformation. The people who scream misinformation, those are the people who cannot be trusted. People who scream about misinformation are usually the ones pushing the misinformation. But here's the study. Omicron variant versus the uh, Delta variant. 53% less risk of symptomatic hospitalization. So we're not talking about the people who are non-symptomatic or asymptomatic. If you're symptomatic, 53% chance, half less, more than half uh, the chance less that you will not be in a hospital. 74% less risk of ICU admission. 91% less risk of death. The Omicron patients required that required uh, a, a uh, mechanical ventilation, meaning a ventilator, zero. Zero. That, that is some interesting data. Couple that with uh, the acting FDA director who said everybody's going to get COVID. And you realize uh, a couple things. And number one, uh, masks don't do the job. Cloth masks certainly have never done the job. Masks don't work the way the civilian population uses them. And number two, don't be filling up hospitals because you got a cold. Check with your doctor. Eat chicken soup. Move on with your day. Notice I said check with your doctor first. Don't take the word of a radio host. Check with your doctor. That's exactly the right thing to do. Meanwhile, over on Twitter, uh, there is a woman who I've never heard of before who works at Spotify, signed a letter with 270 colleagues. They want Spotify, quote, to immediately establish a clear public policy on limiting the spread of misinformation on its platform, starting, of course, with Joe Rogan. What did Joe Rogan do wrong? Take Ivermectin? It works. Maybe not for everybody, but it worked for him. I know a lot of people have taken it. It's an anti-parasitic, not horse dewormer. That was the misinformation. Joe Rogan told the truth. What's the matter? Joe Rogan spoke to Dr. Robert Malone, and that interview has gotten 50 million views. Is that the problem? That the guy who helped build the mRNA technology has issues with how we as a nation are dealing with COVID? Including the idea of the vaccines, which are based on his study? Why does this bother you so much? It's just data. I just gave the data from the CDC director. Should I not be allowed? If someone tells me, a doctor tells me, they have three patients who all took a booster shot and all had a terrible reaction, this, that, and the other, they're not allowed to speak? It's a doctor? If it's not a doctor, it's a person. They're not allowed to have an opinion, a thought, an idea. You call it misinformation, all of a sudden we're supposed to freak out? That's why I say it, guys. The people who scream about misinformation, those th- that's the enemy. Those are the people you have to worry about. You know what Twitter allows? They allow Iranian government officials uh, and accounts to issue death threats against former President Trump. Tweets out there calling for the killing of Trump. 
That's allowed on social media. That's allowed on Twitter. But how dare Joe Rogan interview a doctor and hear what the doctor has to say? It's the upside down, my people. That's all it is. It is the upside freaking down. Our job is not to allow ourselves to be flipped. That's my take. Oh, and we should start asking the question why the Biden administration stopped the distribution of Regeneron and the sale of Regeneron, which is a monoclonal antibody. How many people died because they needed to do more research? More to get to. This is Tony Katz today.